Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. We're starting to get a clearer picture of the situation that unfolded on the set of Rust, where Alec Baldwin handled a firearm that discharged and killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins and injured director Joel Souza. We're learning that a single lead bullet struck both victims, and the assistant director on the scene did not properly check the gun before handing it to Baldwin. For more on how some basic safety protocols were just not followed in this tragedy, we'll speak to Sonia Rao, pop culture reporter at The Washington Post. I think it's fair to say that, you know, if we're trying to see where it was that something went wrong, it was definitely in the handling of the weapon um, that Alec Baldwin was handed before this happened. I think, as you mentioned, the assistant director, Dave Holt, he was the one who handed Baldwin the gun. So it remains to be seen. Detectives are probably, I think, going to address this in the next few days. You know, what went on with that weapon, you know, what it was exactly that ended up, unfortunately, killing the cinematographer and injuring the director as well. But before that, this all happened during rehearsals. Al Baldwin was, you know, rehearsing a scene. And it just so happened that Helena Hutchins and Joel Caesar were by the camera. And in the scene, you know, he presumably points the gun toward the camera. Those are details that we learned recently as well, you know, when exactly this happened, why it was that the cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, why she was near the camera in the first place, because oftentimes the DP and the director, the DP director of photography, they're not actually standing by the camera. So there were a lot of questions prior to this moment. And I think we got that. We got um, more information on, again, as you mentioned, you know, the fact that Dave Halls was previously fired from a set where, you know, a firearm discharged. It's a very similar incident that happened there as well. So detectives haven't, you know, they haven't pointed to anyone just yet, but I think that we're going to see more details come out regarding that in the next few days. Yeah. And these details are coming from an affidavit filed by a detective in the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Mm -hmm. Office. So going a little more to kind of the chaos on the set, I guess, right? There was a lot of reports about crew members walking out on the film and protest of issues related to payment and housing. I guess they had to drive pretty far to go spend the night and then come back really early, you know, the long, the long working hours, all that. So there was a lot of turnover in crew and uh, the armorer that they used as well for this, you know, very green, uh, you know, very little experience mm-hmm. in that all of this kind of contributing and even going to where we saw the gun, right. Just sitting mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, from, this is all from the affidavit, right. Sitting on a, just sitting on a cart outside the building, right? Yeah. And then, you know, with loose ammo around there, and that's where the the assistant director grabbed it and just said, hey, that's a cold gun. You know, all of this stuff kind of just coming together in, for a worst case scenario, really. Yeah, and I think, you know, the update that you mentioned, it had two different interviews. One was with the director who did address the fact that the camera crew had walked off that morning over labor issues, over payment, housing. And, you know, the exact issues were told to the detective by a camera person who ended up staying on set. So, yeah, these are, you know, verified firsthand, the fact that there was just a lot going on that day. And, it you know, the picture that seems to be increasingly clearer here is that this was the result of maybe the production cutting corners, not really allocating as much time and, you know, resources as well to safety on set. Yeah, the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez, they said that there was three prop guns on a cart outside the building, and then that's where Halls grabbed it. He, it basically sounds like they were never checked, 
And that's kind of the thing. You know, these guns are supposed to be checked at pretty much every step. When they grab mm -hmm. it, you check it. Before you give it to the actor, you check it. And it just kind of seemed like that wasn't going on. There was a bunch of other items seized by sheriffs, as I mentioned, just boxes of ammo, things just kind of laying around, loose ammo, also not a good sign. Right. And, you know, I mean, the term cold gun that you mentioned earlier, an actor hears that and they say, oh, hey, OK, this is safe for me to discharge. This is safe for me to use. This won't actually, you know, injure someone the way it did. And so I think that sequence of events is where, you know, unfortunately, we saw many things go wrong and then this ended up happening. I think it really just comes down to safety and, you know, the mismanagement of this prop gun. And now the after effects, right? We're seeing, we're seeing a lot of calls for guns not to be on set. We have technology to be able to use a CGI to make the stuff look pretty mm -hmm. real. So there's calls for that uh, and reinforced calls for using seasoned professionals and union workers to avoid some of these things happening. You know, you might have to pay a little bit more, you know, it might be a low budget film and all that, but you know, in the long run, the safety is paramount. So we're seeing those two types of calls going out for the industry. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how this progresses, even from an artistic standpoint. Someone that spoke up, uh, Craig Zowolf, he did Mayor of Easttown for HBO. He mentioned that, you know, in that show, they actually did use computer imaging. It wasn't all real um, or, you know, made to seem real. And that's in the sense that this movie was maybe trying to do. And I think it's, you know, HBO, it's high profile. I just think it's interesting to see the fact that, you know, a lot of artists seem to be reconsidering the way that they handle scenes like this and whether there are just safer ways to uh, move forward. Sonia Rao, pop culture reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. There's an interesting effort to eliminate gender bias in new toys on the market and also in the marketing associated with them. In California, a bill was signed requiring retailers to have gender-neutral sections for children's items and toys. This is a move that many toy makers have been moving toward, but this law is bringing more attention to the issue. For more on the fight over gender-neutral toys, we'll speak to Allison Prang, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. So this is something that the toy industry and parents and whatnot have been grappling with, I think, for a while. And this new California law, it, like you said, it applies to retailers with 500 staffers or more. So it's not going to apply, apply to your mom and pop type of shops. And it's going to require that they make gender neutral toy aisles, regardless of whether toys in the past were marketed to a boy or say a girl. So yeah, it's going to be a lot more inclusive to all genders, you know, whereas we might associate now boys like the color blue and play with trucks and girls like Barbies and play with dolls. This kind of seeks to disrupt that whole notion. And it's something the industry in some ways has been tiptoeing toward in that there have been other efforts to do this. So around the same time earlier this month, Lego published some research from the Gina Davis Institute on Media that kind of looked at children's play trends and it showed that girls felt less constrained by gender biases in toys than boys did, which was kind of interesting. So that research came out, the California law was passed, which is going to start to be enforced in 2024. There have just been things to throw this issue further into the forefront. And I think it's safe to say that as a society, we're generally looking at this idea of gender more and with how people identify and whatnot. And obviously that's going to translate into just consumer products and our daily lives. Right. Yeah. That, that research from Lego was pretty interesting. They surveyed about 7,000 parents and children in seven different countries. And for the boys, 74% of boys thought that some activities were meant just for boys or girls. 62% of girls believed that. So as you mentioned, kind of the effort to kind of dissipate some of that thinking. 
And what we've seen already, though, is that a lot of retailers and toy makers have already started this trend. You know, they've already been picking up on on this stuff. You mentioned uh, Mr. Potato Head. They dropped the Mr. from that. But just even with other toy lines and things, it, that has already been started. Very true. Like the Toy Association, for example, stopped in 2017. They stopped giving the award for best boy toy and best girl toy. So that was kind of a step in that direction. Target stopped kind of orienting its aisles towards gender. So that was something also that was in 2015 that they started working on that. So it's been a really interesting pivot for some of these companies. I think you can argue that these are, you know, all small piecemeal steps, but but together they can kind of speak to to something larger. A professor I was talking to kind of noted that. And and she said, though, she also made the really good point. This is Rebecca Haynes from Salem State University. She made the really good point. She said there's still room to make progress on being inclusive. You know, she noted, for example, we could show boys and girls playing together and advertising that that would be a step in the right direction that you know like a toy catalog so there are things like that i think if the if this market this toy market wants to push further that they're probably going to have to do you know people have also pushed back it's important to note against the california law and other things like this governor greg abbott in texas tweeted basically that this is government overreach so not everyone's in favor of of moving in this direction it's really important to to also note i think Going back to what you mentioned about having boys and girls play with toys together, I don't know why. The first example that came into my head was, you know, slime and things like that. And I would see a bunch of commercials of both boys and girls playing with those things. And I just look to my own nieces and nephews. They both love those things. Uh, my, my nieces do, my nephew does, and they play together with them. So, you know, maybe that is kind of one of those things that help kind of bridge that gap. Kids see groups of kids playing with things, boys and girls, and they'll be more likely to go that way. As far as the California law, this was proposed by California Assemblyman Evan Lowe. How did that whole thing start? That's a great question. So yes, Evan Lowe offered this bill. And what he said was, what he told me was that one of his staffers said they were shopping with their daughter and their daughter raised the issue of why to find a dinosaur or a periodic table do I need to go into the boys section? And it's it's a very valid question. You know, I mean, this is a perfect example of kids. They start to see what's sort of imposed on them by society from a young age. And so I talked to another parent who actually lives in New York. She has two girls and she was very in favor of the law. You know, I think it's safe to assume not all parents are in favor of this. You know, it's similar to we noted Governor Abbott is not. But some people definitely are. Yeah, it's very interesting, as you mentioned, to see what effect this could have, especially in California. It's kind of like the test subject, the test group for this. But even the Toy Association that you mentioned earlier said there's so many products are already grouped by category. They're not uh, specifically catered to gender already. They don't expect such a big change. But still, as you mentioned, kind of with that blue and pink type style and, and that merchandising, maybe there could be some changes. But an interesting look and, you know, we'll see how it plays out in California Allison Prang, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. On the pandemic front, we could very soon be seeing mass firings across the country as deadlines for vaccine mandates approach. The federal government, certain states, and private companies have faced opposition from employees as some are still resisting their shots for a variety of reasons. But what happens after that? Disruptions to some essential services could occur, as rehiring and training may lag. Firefighters, police, and nursing staff are not so easily replaced. For more on all this, we'll speak to Pedro Gonzalez, associate editor at Chronicles Magazine. I think it's important to note that all of this is unprecedented in the sense that 
we are purging people that we would otherwise consider essential frontline workers, nurses, doctors, firefighters, paramedics, military officers, police officers. These are all people that are not easy to, one, recruit, two, train, and in general replace. Right. And yet we seem pretty ready to, to fire a lot of them. And in upstate New York, for example, so many nurses resigned over the vaccine mandates that this hospital had to stop delivering children. Kaiser Permanente placed more than 2,000 employees nationwide on unpaid leave. Other hospitals have done very similar things, mass firings or the the euphemism is unpaid leave because what follows next is usually complete termination. My experience has been that the for the most part, firefighters, police officers, and people in the military are really reluctant to talk about this. Not because they don't want to talk about it, but because they're afraid of their supervisors, of their city governments, or of their of their in the case of the military, it's their it's their senior leadership. But in the case of firefighters and law enforcement, oddly enough, it's their unions as well. In other words, the groups that are supposed to advocate on, on their behalf are totally against them. And they're working with their superiors and local governments to basically stifle dissent. And in, again, in many cases, it was difficult to just get people to talk to me and to include their information in the article, I had to make sure that it couldn't come back to them. That That is how afraid police officers and people in the military are of, of their own leadership right now. Yeah. Just for asking uh, for religious exemptions that are denied, and this is the other feature of this story that has really been underreported, is that it doesn't seem to be the case that in these worlds of law enforcement and military, the leadership structures are handling applications for religious exemptions in good faith. In fact, in, in some in some instances, uh, people are told ahead of time, don't even bother filing because we're not, you're not going to get it right. and we're not going to give it to you. You know, we've covered uh, a lot of this stuff on the podcast before and employers, obviously the federal government, they all have very wide latitude when it comes to accepting or rejecting these religious exemptions and the same thing with mandating the vaccine. So I, I know that a lot of these people are just kind of put in a difficult position I know there's a lot of lawsuits out there as well. Who knows how those will bear out, but they're all in very tough positions. And as you mentioned, we're already seeing some of those firings. And you did mention, right, the, the unpaid leave, right? That's the next step is that termination. So that's going to be all coming down the line. You did speak to a number of firefighters, which I thought was interesting, talking about how you know, some of them are given some accommodations maybe, but they're put on like segregated rigs. So they're not right. even there to be able to completely yeah. fulfill their duty, let's say, right? They're uh, right. just giving them, you know, uh, other assignments, things that they're not necessarily there to be doing. Yeah. So in Beverly Hills, a firefighter I spoke to named Josh Satley told me that even if you're lucky enough to get an exemption and you comply with the mandates like wearing a mask at work and testing regularly because you're unvaccinated, you are put on a rig that is not allowed to respond to medical emergencies, only fire calls. And so what does that mean? It means that there are parts of the city that will go uncovered by medics. 
because you only have paramedics are in short demand. Even before the pandemic, right. there were nationwide shortages of firefighters, medics, and cops of these first responders. And so again, this is not someone that you can just replace in the in a matter of a few weeks. The the, the courses for becoming a paramedic that kind of thing takes a while same with same with police and so that's happening now of course cities are not going to talk about this and i think it's going to be suppressed until you you just can't suppress it anymore but i was told by one police officer that he called an ambulance for a medical emergency and it took two hours for the ambulance to arrive and this is in a city where you're having this this issue now where they're starting to kind of separate people based on whether or not they're vaccinated and unvaccinated. I mean, you're, you're already starting to see the effects of this. And for the people that don't think that this affects them, and maybe they're secretly glad that someone who, you know, who refused to get vaccinated is going to get fired, well, it's going to affect you when you call the police or when you call uh, an ambulance, maybe, right. Dep- depending on how many people are still working in your city. Totally. And, and, that's, uh, and that's the next yeah. point, right? What happens when people are fired? To your point earlier, you just can't hire somebody and... Uh, they're going to start on the job, you know, in a week or so. It takes time right. for all that. The training is intensive, right? I think uh, you mentioned in, in one of the cases, police officers and a full-fledged independent police officer until they're two years on the job. So there's a lot of interesting yeah. things like that where there could be delays uh, in these essential services. And you're right. I mean, we're probably not going to hear about it until it, it reaches a fever pitch and we're really seeing some disruptions in those services. Yeah, in San Francisco... Funny because the firefighters and the police I spoke to said that if the city eventually uh, decides to accommodate people for exemptions, it's not going to be because of firefighters, cops and medics. It's going to be because of the municipal transportation agency, because of all the different municipal departments, the one department that has the most people appealing for exemptions is the department that oversees the San Francisco region's massive transit system. It's something like 11 percent of their workforce is is asking for exemptions and if san francisco actually goes through with this and fires these people or puts them on unpaid leave you're looking at massive service disruptions for buses and trains that is what is ironically that's what's upsetting people in san francisco and what is maybe going to be the thing that saves all the other departments from uh these these purges um but this is going to affect everyone i i think so but we're not really we're not really talking about this. In many cases, we're being really callous towards these people. But a, a point that I make in my article, and a point that all of these people made to me was, I worked through the the surge and to the pandemic before vaccines were even available. Like firefighters, cops were telling me, like I kept going to work even, and if we got sick, we took the the allotted time off, and then we came back to work and we kept doing our jobs and now because we're asking in good faith for religious exemptions we're being fired i mean i can't imagine being in that position especially if you're like a veteran that's been doing this for you know 20 years or whatever and you you live through this stuff and now you're just getting a pink slip pedro gonzalez associate editor at chronicles magazine thank you very much for joining us thanks for having me don't forget to join us on social media at daily dive pod on twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.